Welcome to the Carmen Murray Show, where we have conversations about 21st century business and culture. Here in the Murray Den, we'll open a window into a world of things that intrigue and inspire. Share stories of excitement, hope, bravery, courage, and resilience. And now, from the Solid Gold Studios, let's level up, lean in, and get Murray with your host, Carmen Murray, as we let curiosity lead us down new paths. Hey, 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 Future Tribe! Welcome back to yet another episode on the Carmen Murray Show, and you are in the Murray Den, and we are going to have some fun today. I recently went to the SME.Africa event, and I saw this guy doing his talk and it was so phenomenal i was sitting at the edge of my seat and i was like oh my word i cannot believe that a guy could go through so many things in his lifetime and he wrote a book from para to dakar and it's overcoming paralysis and conquering the dakar rally a journey of courage and determination and boy oh boy is his story inspiring so without further ado, Joey, welcome. Hey, awesome to be here. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I'm super excited. And it <laughs> took a while to get organized and thank you for your patience. Oh, good. But I think um, the audience, please stick around from now to the end of this episode because it's going to take you on a journey like never before. Okay, maybe let's start at the beginning. Cool. What is the Dakar Rally? Man, well, the Dakar Rally, I first found out about it when I was a kid. You, you know, I'd heard this thing about this Dakar Rally. I didn't know a lot about it. And when I was in my 20s and I was riding motorcycles and stuff, I, I saw some footage on TV and I started to find out a lot more about it. And what it is, it started off as a as a 9,000-kilometer race from Paris in, in France all the way to Dakar, the capital of Senegal up on the northwest coast of Africa. You could do this race on a motorcycle. You could do it on a quad bike. You could do it in a car. You could do it in a truck. And the guys would cover this distance of 9,000 to 10,000 kilometers in two weeks off-road. And so it quickly became known as, as the toughest, most grueling off-road race in the world. You know, generally, there would be all sorts of, of challenges along the way, mechanical, physical. And along with that, was, there'd often be deaths on the race. And it averaged at about nearly two deaths a year for, sure. for, for the last 39 years. How how is that legal if these people are dying? Like, explain <laughs> it to me. You, you know what, eh? for for a lot of us out there, there's there's a lot of competitions now, a lot of sports and a lot of all sorts of stuff. But they kind of get more and more clinical. And for for someone like myself, you know, a race like the Dakar Rally, man, it just kind of speaks to you. And naturally, you don't want to crash, you don't want to get hurt, you don't want to die. Of course, you don't. But you want to be out there. You want to be in the wild. You want to be in far open places. You want to be in just doing things and and in, in places where it just speaks to your soul. It's not just a, mm-hmm. another tournament, you know, or another little race. It's a, it's, you want something that's the real deal where, you, where your life's on the line. You see, something that was very fascinating, and before we get into your journey, is um, I've never heard about the Dakar Rally. Mind my ignorance. That's <laughs> okay. all I saw the talk. And... The first thing that was going through my mind is my objective is to open a business that I can flourish and I can impact people's lives, et cetera, et cetera. You take on this journey to actually put your life at risk. And I'm going, why is this a goal? <laughs> like, why would you want to do this? Like, I mean, what was the reward for finishing something like this? Oh, there's, no, there's no real reward in terms of like you know, monetary value or, or fame or anything like that. There's no reward for any of like that. There's many guys that, that finish this race and then you just carry on with your life, you know, but, but you carry on your, with your life with a totally different perspective. You know, when you race through, through these, you know, crazy, incredible countries, just, just to give you a bit of context, that's the word I'm looking for. There you go. But a context, the race was changed from Africa to South America 11 years ago. Um, a lot of because terrorism threats and that kind of stuff. So for the last 11 years, it's run through South America. And so I got to race it you know, through South America. And man, it's a, when you ride your motorcycle through Bolivia and crossing the Andes mountains and that kind of stuff, those are the sort of things that one day when you're on your, le- on your deathbed, you're going to think back about and have a little chuckle, you know, and that's, and I think that's what it's about. You know, you can go through life being super safe, not taking any risk, whether it's business or with your health or with whatever other things, you know, you can wrap yourself in bubbles, bubble wrap and just kind of, protect yourself or you get out there and you freaking live i love it okay let's go back tell me about your wife your children okay how you met her 
and your journey together. Oh man, you know my wife's Meredith, and she's she really is incredible. And the first time I saw her, uh, you know, I'll never forget it. And I've and I've told her before, but she she just kind of glowed. You know, she was <laughs> laughing, and she was one of those girls that her eyes just lighted up when she laughed, and and I was just like, wow. <laughs> and you know, we got we got married pretty young. She was twenty, and I was twenty three when we got married. And by the time I was twenty eight, and she was twenty six, we had four daughters. Whoa, so, no yep. TV. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, if you prefer watching TV, I think you're doing it wrong. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, so four kids, 28, and then what? Yeah. And then I've got this dream now to race this Dakar Rally. You know, it started there in my 20s. I just wanted to do this race. But naturally, having four, four little girls and, you know, you're worried about things like the price of nappies and milk and getting in your own home and paying off your first car and all that type of stuff. There was just so much going on that to do a race like that at the time was just simply impossible. There was no ways I could, I could do a race like that. And so it kind of went on the back burner. But I was always like, man, one day, one day I'm going to race the Dakar Rally. Okay, so you decide, right, you're going to start bringing this, this dream to fruition, the Dakar Rally. So when did you actually start doing the whole thing on bikes and exploring that? Was it something you've done as, as a young child or did that only start when you realized you want to do the Dakar Rally? Yeah, no, I, I grew up riding bicycles, you know, riding BMXs and we'd build ramps in the felt and we'd go down to the local BMX track with my buddies and that kind of stuff. And man, I loved I loved riding BMXs. You know, I grew up in, in Kempton Park on the East Rand and, and, and I had a childhood where we were free. You know, you could ride in the felt, you could do these kind of things and it was, it was cool, but we didn't have a lot of money. I was part of a big family myself. I was one of six children okay. um, and so there was no money for, for motorcycles or something like that. So I actually never rode motorcycles growing up. I had a couple of friends in high school who, who raced motocross and things, so I was kind of around them but never had a, had a chance to, to ride and race and I bought my first motorbike when I was 26. Wow. 26 years old. 26 was the first time I bought a bike and I, and I pulled off with a lot of jerking and, and all sorts of stuff. Oh and then, it's <laughs> an off road, right? And then, yeah, that's it. Yeah. But then I got into it, you know, once you kind of learn the controls, you get into it, having a background in bicycles makes, makes motorbikes, you know, relatively easy. It's pretty similar. It's a good crossover sport from, from mountain bikes and that kind of stuff. And yeah, then I got into it and then I got into motocross, which is the, the dirt, you know, tracks with the big jumps and stuff. And then I, you know, messed around a little bit with freestyle motocross, which is the metal ramps, the tricks, those oh sort of stuff. Gosh. And then um, got into off-road and enduro. And that was where I found my passion, you know, racing cross-country and through forests and rivers and mountains. And that was like, yeah, this is my place. But listen, I have to tell you a funny story. So I've actually been on off-road. I had a boyfriend that was into racing and stuff like that. He sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not with me, so no. No, he's not. <laughs> anyway, uh, we used to go to the mine dump. Uh, yeah, mines, mine dumps. Yeah, mine dumps. Yeah. And he used to go and all muddy. And it's like, I used to be at the back. And then he tried to teach me how to, oh my God. <laughs> it was the most scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, because it's like, there's so much power between your legs. Yeah. Like it feels I don't know. It just feels like you could just whip off yeah, at, and you at can. a second yeah. <laughs> and slide. And, oh, no, yeah. it's just very, very scary. Um, <laughs> so you then started training and then something happened. Yeah, so I started, you know, I couldn't obviously do the Dakar at the time, but uh, I raced, you know, a lot local stuff, you know, as much as I could afford local races and things. I did race like the Roof of Africa and uh, Botswana Desert Race and those kind of things. And, and I was lying second in the in the regional championship, you know, in the off-road series here in South Africa. And it was the second last race of the season. And I stood on that start line and I knew if I won that race, I, c I could win this championship. And at the time, it was just the most important thing in my life, it felt. But standing there on that start line was the last thing I remembered. And the next thing I remembered was waking up, lying in the dirt, my helmet was off. I'm looking at the sky and there's just people looking down at me. Sure. And what had happened was going into that first corner, there'd been a big pileup of bikes and things, a big crash. And in the dust and the mayhem, other riders had ridden over me as well. <gasps> you know, and I, and I lay there looking up at these people, you know, as I was coming around, obviously being unconscious. And I started spitting out dirt and stones, which, I, which is what I thought was in my mouth, but it turned out to be my teeth because I just shattered 12 of my teeth down into the gums. But that wasn't the worst injury because as I lay there with my legs bent, they were leaning against a friend of mine and they stood back and my legs just fell to the ground. And I said to the paramedics, I, I can't feel my legs. 
and that was when it was like the reality just kind of like you know just kind of hit us okay so so obviously it's almost like all your dreams comes crashing down you have been striving towards going to the Dakar rally yeah you are paralyzed or did you know you were paralyzed or what was going through your mind at that particular point in time when you realized you had no feeling in your legs at first i didn't really understand it you know i got to be honest it was at at first you're like cool i can't feel my legs is is obviously i've broken something or done something and we're going to go to hospital we're going to have an operation there's going to be a couple months of healing and i'll be i'll be sorted you know but oh man i can't believe this i'm not going to be able to race for 6 weeks or something that was pretty much extent of my understanding and over the next 48 hours i was transported to three different hospitals and ended up at the milmed spinal unit in pretoria and that was where i learned the extent of my injuries and and what i'd done is i'd broken my t8 and t9 vertebrae in my back broken the vertebrae off the ribs and crushed my spinal cord and I'm paralyzed from the chest down and the doctor said to me you're not going to walk again this is how it's going to be the rest of your life and then it kind of hits you sure. and you you talk about the dream to race the Dakar that was really you know bottom of the list at the time if I'm being honest because yeah. there was so much else I mean I want to like I want to travel with my wife I want to be able to you know play with my daughters and teach them to ride bicycles and and you got like your plans for business and your home and your life and there's just there's everything and it's mm-hmm. all just evaporated every goal every everything you've ever wanted to do is just gone when that happened what was your your wife's reaction to this because you know obviously this this is a big thing to go through it's a big adjustment in in both your lives your children's lives Talk to me through that journey. Obviously, it was a massive challenge for myself physically, but for my wife as well, it was a huge challenge. You know, you can imagine uh, having a, a family with four children and suddenly dad's gone, you know, because I was in that hospital for, for several months. You know, it was just and now, and dad's probably never going to be able to walk again and never be able to, you know, be like he was and stuff and obviously people on the outside are looking at this and going like yep she'll probably leave him or this type of stuff you know which is something that just infuriated my wife you know yeah. she was like never you know kind of thing which was which was good to hear I won't lie <laughs> but <laughs> that's it was, what makes Meredith amazing <laughs> uh, she is she really is but it was difficult and it was a really really dark dark difficult time in our lives you know there'd be days that that we'd be in that hospital and she'd just cry it was just so difficult and I'd hug her and I'd be like, man, we got this, you know, are we going to pull through this, whatever it takes kind of thing. But there were other times that I'd, I'd lie in bed in that hospital bed at night in the dark on my own, just staring at the ceiling, not being able to move and just, and just cry myself. You know, it was just, it was so difficult to every day just wake up and face the same challenge again and again and again. Did you go into a state of depression when you, you know, when this happened, how long did it last? Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't say I did. You know, I'm a pretty positive guy, you know, and I was oh, yeah. always kind of like, man, we're going we're gonna to fight this thing, man, whatever it takes. We're going to do this. And if I don't get to walk, then I don't get to walk. Then I'll be the flipping toughest oak in a wheelchair you'll ever see, you know, kind of <laughs> thing, you know. And, and so I, I was pretty positive, but it, it wasn't like that every moment of every day. Mm. You know, there were certainly dark times when you just like go like this is too much i just can't man um but but i learned early on that you can't let those times last you know once you start getting that self-pity thing coming on and you can feel it and it opens up like a spiral staircase going downwards next to you and you start taking those first couple steps down and you got to be like whoa 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 wait we don't want to go down here you know and you got to turn around and think of all the the positive things you know all the you know i used to think like would what if this happened to one of my daughters? Mm. Would, would I trade places with her, you know, to have it happen to me? For sure I would. You, you know what I mean? So this is better than it happening to one of my daughters. I'm, I, I'm in a hospital surrounded by guys who are quadriplegics. You know, I'm paraplegic, so that means I've still got full use of my arms and my hands and things, you know. I can, I can do so much more than this guy next to me who's got nothing. He can't move his arms. He can't move his hands. He's got absolutely nothing and suddenly you feel like man my setup is easy compared to this guy and so you start looking at all the positives of where you're at and you're alive you could have died on that track that day guys die on the track sure you know die racing motorcycles all the time it's a and so you start to suddenly look at all these positive things and all the things you're fortunate about and you change your whole mindset and suddenly hey man this ain't so bad we we got this we got this Mm. truly does give you perspective 
I mean, if I just look on uh, at our day to day lives, like you know, you 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 sometimes have this. Uh, my mom always used to call it the chuntasol. You know, yeah. When you <laughs> when when everything is turning in your stomach and you yeah. you're always so worried about things. And then you come along and you're like, okay, right, uh, we've got this. We're gonna we're gonna change things around, and it makes our problems and the things that we worry about seem so small. Oh man, if I can say to anyone who's like, if you think you got a tough time and you really you're really struggling and things, do yourself a favor and spend an afternoon at a at a rehab center. You know, whether it's guys with spinal injuries or guys with brain injuries, um, or, or go take a walk through a hospital and 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 you. You get a whole new perspective on your life, man. You you know you takes you know if you if you got good health or fair health or whatever you know, it's it's a fantastic blessing to have that. And and a lot of people out there don't have that. And suddenly you realize, hey man, there's a lot I can do with what I got. Mm, for sure. And something that um, you know when you go through your journey, that um, I was quite curious about. You know, um, I, I'm quite of a. a uh, I'm a stand for diversity and I'm, I'm quite of an activist when it comes to that mm. and, you know, protecting all kind of people, um, no matter how diverse they are, whether it's somebody with a disability, whether it's somebody of color, whether it's um, women, etc. Yeah. And from your perspective, when you were paralyzed, was there things that you that you noticed how infrastructure for people that are disabled? Oh, man. I mean, like so much. No, I know exactly what you mean. So much, so much, so much. You know, for starters, people stare at you everywhere you go. You know, when you're in a wheelchair, and along with my injury, you know, you lose all bowel control, you lose all bladder control. So you're wearing nappies. You got a bag of urine strapped to your leg. I'm missing half my teeth. It was like, it was rough, man. And along with that, you've got like ramps for wheelchairs, and and you look at this ramp and you think. You know, I'm perfectly able-bodied from the, you know, in, from above my stomach, basically. So I've got a, you know, nothing wrong with my chest or my arms or my shoulders or anything like that. And I'm, and, and I'm a pretty strong guy. And there's no ways in hell I'd be able to push a wheelchair up a ramp that steep. At that steep, you, you know what I mean? Impossible. But you, you know, that's a, a ramp they put there for guys who are quadriplegic, who have got like just a bit of triceps and stuff. You know, it's it's ridiculous. Like, and they think they've ticked that box of like, cool man, we're sorted. Um, but not even close. You have paraplegic toilets where once you get your wheelchair in, you can't close the door. <laughs> you, you, you know, see. and and so many things like that. It was just, it's it's a very very you know the world is a very very difficult place for for someone with a, a physical disability. Absolutely. And so when I see guys parking in bays for paraplegic guys and that kind of stuff, and they think, well, that guy can get there. No, he's got to be able to get his car there and his door open and a wheelchair next to it. You can't get that space in a normal normal bay and things you know so when i see guys like that uh yeah the blood blood boils a little (laughs) and and i'll tell you what was cool though is all my mates are like that you know all my friends are like you you know now after seeing what what i've been through and them them experiencing it with me there's a there's a couple hundred bike activists out there as well you know making sure there's a (laughs) space for guys to park now (laughs) yeah but it's so important you know i used to work on the ships right yeah that was this was one of the first training courses we had was how to handle a person with a disability yeah have to ask permission to touch the wheelchair because people just you don't think yep but yeah. there's so many things that you, this is this is an extension of their body is is you know the your chair, wheelchair yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you need to respect the boundaries and you know some people are very obnoxious and just think well not obnoxious is maybe not the word they're so eager to help yeah but that person necess- doesn't necessarily want to be helped sure and you have to ask permission and I think I, I just want to focus on that for a while is like you know. People need to also take in consideration when there's people with disabilities where the boundaries are. And what what do you think that those boundaries should be? Every person with a disability is an individual, mm. you know. And so some people, just like individuals out there, some people are super open to help and this and that, and some people are super closed to it. And so it's not like this is how you treat someone with a disability. It's more a case of you treat them with respect, respect. and kindness, just like you treat everybody else, you know. Um, and so. For a lot of us, and it's probably, you know, I mean, you can't generalize, but for the majority of people with disabilities, you can talk about it, man. You can even joke about it. You know what I mean? My buddies joke around with me, you know, when because even now I walk a little bit, you know, 
with a little bit of a limp and stuff and things like, come on, Joey, waiting for you again. But you, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, and they'll, they'll have a go at me and things. And it's, and it's all just yeah. part of the fun. You know, it's not something that it's like, you got to, you're ashamed of and you got to hide and stuff, you know? Um, and so you can speak openly about it first of all, but absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you want to help somebody say, Hey man, do you need a hand there? You're good. Um, instead of just walking up and picking up a wheelchair and moving stuff and, you know, because, you know, some guy getting in his car is like, hey, yeah, yo, I've got to get out. You know, how am I going to, how am I going to get out the other end if you put it in the boots, you know? <laughs> so there's lots of, lots of things to bear in mind for sure. No, but that's so cool. But you, I just want to give you a joke. So my husband, um, he's got like, he's Irish, so he's got quite a crazy sense of humor. Like, okay. In the beginning, I, I, I thought you were going to say there was a disability for a moment there. <laughs> no, but he, 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 he loves having fun with people um, no matter what because he sees human to human just like I do. Like, yes. you know, you're a person, but I always like, I want to be very respectful. Yeah. And he just goes in there and they would say, hey, are you arms dealer? When he sees like somebody yeah. doesn't have an arm, I'm like, you can't say that. <laughs> like, like he just has this crazy <laughs> sick sense of humor. But then he gets a laugh and a chuckle and, and whatever and then gets the ice broken and then they have a conversation and then exactly. they'll speak for an hour about life, football, anything. Totally. Um, and, and I think that's the beautiful thing is this, I, I think life has become so dark what's going on in politics, the mood changes yeah. all the time. And all the political correctness stuff as well, you know. It's like the guys who are, who are disabled and stuff, just chat to them like they're a person, man. You know, don't talk to them like they're a project, you know. And, Love that. And, and, that uh, and that makes – they can see it. And I think guys don't get offended with what you do. It's more the intentions, you know what I mean? If someone's intending to do good and intending to be kind and stuff, you know, if he's messing it up and he's – it doesn't matter, man. He's – it's, it's intentions that matter, in my opinion. Yeah. Before we move on, I just want to – something interesting that I read two days ago just really got to me was somebody said, the moment that somebody asks you what um, job you do, it's almost in their mind as if they put you on a level, the amount of respect that you deserve. Sure, yeah. And I think that it's the same with people that have disabilities. I think there's a lot of people out there that – are judgmental about these things and I think it's completely unfair yeah you know people need to, need to as you say definitely need to embrace and understand the journey and I think we're going to take them through the journey now for sure something something on that quick was that that I've never really spoken about in, in interviews before was that my injury obviously I'm surrounded by people here in this hospital that have got different spinal cord injuries or head injuries or this type of stuff probably 99% of them all is, is accidents, you, you know, like car accidents, work accidents, those kind of things, you know, like stuff that's really unfortunate. I'm sitting there, I was racing motorcycles. Mm. And it's a, for a lot of people, they look at that and it's almost like, yeah, you kind of deserve it, it, it you know, in a way. Yeah. And that was something that I had to kind of deal with. And that, that kind of stigma of that you were a guy racing bikes and now you're paralyzed, it's almost like, well, what did you expect? You know, and that, that was an added burden on top of my physical burden to to kind of deal with that and you could probably draw a very good parallel um, with someone who has HIV you know it's not just the physical challenge but it's the judgment of others going like well what did you expect you know what I mean it's a it's an added thing that you don't need and we don't need to do that we don't need to add to that person's burden he's he or she is dealing with incredibly difficult challenges and so our judgment is just piling onto that they certainly don't need it and it's completely a lack of empathy. And I, I think this is the, the whole thing of biases and stereotyping and, and like literally just judging a person. And I think, and also just, just to put myself into your position, being judged like that, you know, you have a family and you have to look them in the eye and then in the back of your mind, you're like, you know, you, you start yeah. doubting yourself. Yeah, Did I deserve it? Ball, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. You know, um, and I, I, I totally agree with you. And it's a, it's a very insightful um, statement that you just made. I think we need to tweet that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you then go through this recovery, some a miraculous uh, recovery. Talk me through how this happened. Was it a mindset thing? Was it something I just don't understand how it possibly could happen that you you walked into the studio today? Yeah, gotcha. For sure, man. It was uh, you know at first you know you're told cool you're never going to walk again, and then you think like yeah, man, you know of course I will. You know it can't be that bad, you know. But as the days and weeks pass away, and you got no movement, no feeling, and your legs are getting skinnier and skinnier, and you can't even recognize your body anymore. It's not even you, you know. These kind of you know just skinny legs, and it, it was just. It was just terrible. And suddenly the reality starts to hit you that, man, this is it. 
this is this is rest your life type of stuff you know but but i was super fortunate what i had was a it's called an incomplete spinal cord injury so then the one day i got a little flicker in my right big toe where if i really focused i could make my right big toe just twitch just a little and the doctors ended up fusing my back at t8 t9 in an effort to take some pressure off the spinal cord and things as well and then there was a little bit of a uh, you know stressful time then because that flicker went and all that sort of stuff but then it came back and then slowly but surely i started to get a little bit more feeling in my left ankle a little bit in my right quad and basically that next year 2008 was spent with a lot of rehab a lot of like learning to walk again learning to stand again and it was just slow 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 stuff um and to this day i mean i'm 12 years on now i still can't run i can't jump um i don't have I can't feel hot or cold or pain sensation below my chest. Um, you know, I can't sweat below my chest. My legs still spasm if my adrenaline goes or or, I'm, or I get tired and things. My feet still have pins and needles. feel like they're sunburnt. And to be perfectly frank, I still have to use catheters every day. Um, and I'm 12 years into this. So, sure. so there's a lot of stuff that I've got as permanent damage. But, man, I've got a lot back. And I've certainly got a lot to be to be grateful for. But it's all about that mindset of like i can list the things i don't have you know but man if i list the things i do have that's a long list what was your wife's and your 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 daughter's expression when they saw you walking on your own for the first time oh man there was there was plenty tears you know in that first bit you know it was (laughs) it was some incredibly low 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 moments and some incredibly high moments as well you know because suddenly it's like you're not dealing with little things here man this is this is big stuff, man. This is life-changing things, you know, life-changing catastrophes and life-changing achievements and just walking in the sunshine out of that hospital was was pretty damn cool. <laughs> I love that. Now, I have a very – I'm sure the audience as they're listening are going, why on earth would you do the Dakar rally <laughs> if you've just gone through the worst time of your life? <laughs> what happened? How did this happen? I mean, I'm sure you had to teach yourself how to get on a bike. Yeah, for sure. You know, when I was in that hospital, I thought about this goal to race the Dakar Rally. And along with that, I thought about, you know, goals and dreams and all that sort of stuff. And when you have an injury like this or, or you're in such a dark place physically, you basically have one decision that you get to make, you know, because a lot of it is just physical stuff that you don't get to decide, but you get to make the one decision. And the decision you get to make is am I going to live again or not? Because that's all that you can do. And if you decide to live again, then every choice after that fits in line with that, that man, we're going to keep going. We're going to do it. And along with that, I thought about all my goals and dreams. And I was like, man, I'm still going to live. I'm still going to do all that stuff. And one of those was the Dakar rally. And I was like, yep, we're going to do that one day. That'll be my, my line in the sand. The one day when I do that race, that'll be me overcoming my physical injury. So Meredith, did she buy into this? <laughs> I'm just like... I knew that was coming. <laughs> I'm like, if you were my husband, I was like, nope, not going to happen. <laughs> uh, you look at, in, in the beginning, it was, it was something that was just so ridiculous that I think no one ever thought like this would ever happen. You know, here's a guy, a married guy with four children who's paralyzed in a wheelchair and at the time because of all this these challenges having my own business and stuff i was stone broke so you're stone broke in a wheelchair paralyzed with this family there's no and then you're gonna say like hey man i'm gonna race the dakar rally you know they're gonna look at you and go like "Ah, i think this guy's having a little too much medication (laughs) um you know there's just there's just no ways and so it was something that was so ridiculously pie in the sky dream that i don't think you know perhaps myself included ever thought that it would be a be a reality. I believe in in uh, visualization and meditation and stuff. It, you almost remind me what is um, uh, Ian McGregor? Uh-huh. Like, cause he always has such a clear vision that he will win one day, and it was just so clear to him, and he just believed it on the on the good days and the bad days. Is that kind of what what your mindset was all about? Oh, for sure. You know, I, you know, it was difficult at first because you would dream at night. And I would dream I'm running, I would dream I'm riding my bike, I'm doing things. And then you wake up in the morning and you're paralyzed. And then the same happens again the next night and you wake up and you're paralyzed. And it was just, it would grind you down. But I kept looking at that and kept going like one day, one day we're going to do it. And, and you kind of think in your mind like you're in a very fortunate position because you're in a position where you get to write a flipping cool comeback story. 
and, and you've really got to be in such a, a dark place to, to be able to write a story like that. Anybody who only has good things happen to them, you don't get to write a good comeback story. You know, that's sorry, bud, you don't get that one. Only someone who's really been down and dark and broke and, and you know, broken physically or financially or emotionally or whatever, those are the guys who get to write the cool comeback stories. And so when you're down in that place, you've got to look at it and go like, cool, this is chapter one, let's go. And, and every day I'd wake up and be like, right, that's what we're working on. And, and I certainly visualized crossing that finish ramp, you know, of that race. That was something that, that kept me going many, many times. So how much does it cost to go to the Dakar Rally? I can't. I mean, because mm-hmm. you have to take. First of all, you have to have a bike. Did you yeah. have? A, did you have a bike? No, you got to have a particular bike, and that bike is six hundred thousand rand. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> let, let's calculate this. Okay. Six hundred k. Six hundred k. Okay. You need to have transportation to oh, take the bike. There's so much. There. I'll, like, I'll tell mean, you. I'll tell, tell you. So me. you've got all the things you got to have, like. You got to have a mechanic. You got to have a backup vehicle. You got to have new tires and new mooses, which is the thing that fits in the tires every single day. You've got to have spares. You got to have flights to South America. You got to have flights for your mechanic. You've got to have someone to drive your mechanic from pit to pit. So you got to be part of a team. It just it just goes click 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 click. There's entry fees. There's licenses. There's all sorts of stuff. It just visas. It just goes on and on and on. But to give you an idea, it's six hundred k for the bike and another one point one million rand to do the race. <gasps> How on earth did you get the money together? <laughs> so, what you know, we, we spent all our life savings, you know, as a family for me to go and race in Morocco, which was the qualifying was which was a qualifying race for the Dakar. So I got back from that, and now we're skint. But I sent in my CV and I got my entry accepted to Dakar. So now I've got this entry in my hand. <laughs> but I got no money. Oh, but it's taken me nine years to get that entry in my hand. So, so as, I, as I said in the talk the other night, that you know, I'm not about to let a silly little thing like money stand in the way now. <laughs> so you know, I sat down with Meredith and my girls and I said, right, we've got six months to the start of this race. We're going to finance the bike and then we need to raise 1.1 million rand. And so we just did everything we could think of, man. We did enduro bike events and adventure bike events and we did... Um, uh, we said anybody who donates, you know, whether it's 10 Rand or 10,000 Rand, we'll put your name on the bike. And we did, we, we sold caps and t shirts and raffles and all sorts of stuff. Everything just shy of, you know, selling heroin, you know, we did just about, <laughs> just about anything we could. And it was, and it was just a couple of days before the start of the race. And we hit that goal of 1.1 million Rand in six months. Oh my gosh, I must come for lessons. <laughs> I can do, for, uh, find my own business. Oh my gosh. Okay, so now you've got this money, you arrive. What did it smell like? Oh, man. You know, when you, when you ride up that start line of the race and there's all those bikes there and it was, yep, you can smell the fuel. You, can, you, you look at these trucks. You look at these guys driving these trucks and these cars and these bikes and you look around, you can see in the eyes of all these guys, these are like, these are some tough buggers, man. You know, to get, <laughs> to, get to the start line of the Dakar really, it takes a lot just to get to that start line. You know, you've got to qualify. You've got to, I mean, there's, there's lots. And, and you line up there. And when you're lining up, you're lining up shoulder to shoulder with factory racers. You know, these are guys you've seen on TV. Yeah. You can imagine a cyclist lining up, you know, a regular cyclist from, you know, from, from down the road here, lining up at the start of the Tour de France or a, or, a, or a soccer fan running out on the field in the World Cup. That's what it is. You are literally a regular sure. guy, an amateur rider, and you are racing against pros. You're, you're right there. And it's the most incredible feeling and the sights and the smells and the sounds of those bikes revving and stuff is just pretty beautiful. Oh my gosh. And now, now, you, now you, you, you're just about to go off. So yeah. do, what is going through your mind at Don't that die. moment? Don't die. Is that Don't die. Don't, Don't die. die. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fall off the bike. That was part of the deal with my wife. I wasn't allowed to die. So for sure, you know, and I started riding that first day and I'm being very, very cautious and I'm like, and it was just, you know, maybe 20 kilometers in, you know, and it's muddy and I'm slipping over in the mud and I've dropped the bike a few times and I'm like, come on, Joey, man. You know, sort your stuff out. You can't race super cautious like this. You know, you just, it's, it's, it's silly. And so what I did is I, you know, I took a deep breath. I stood there next to my bike a bit, had a drink out of my camelback and stuff. And I'm like, all right, let's flip and hammer down. Let's race this thing, you know. And so I got on and then I raced and, and I rode like I'd race back home. And 
And then it was so much better because now you're doing what you do. Mm. And, and I raced on and there were so many different challenges every day. And it was, it was the most difficult, extreme thing. You know, you hear about these guys dying at Dakar and you're thinking like, yeah, yeah, it's guys that are just racing too fast, taking silly chances, you know, careless guys. You know, I've been riding for many years. I've had bad accidents. I understand the risks here yeah, and I'm going to be smart. You know what I mean? Mm. And suddenly you're in a dune field where you can't see very far because there's dunes in every direction. And you oh have gosh, got cars sun, yeah. and trucks coming over from all different directions. You're being blinded by the sun. You drop your bike on the downside of a dune. You've just come over. You can hear a car coming up behind you. He doesn't know you've fallen right over the crest. You, 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 and, and suddenly you're like, oh, <laughs> this is how guys die. You know, it, it was very, very real. And every day I saw guys with broken arms, broken legs. There was one quad that went off the side of the mountain when we were crossing through the Andes and he, and he, and he just – you know, you've got these switchback roads and, and, he, and there was nothing difficult about the section. He obviously just passed out or fell asleep or, or something like that. And he just went right over the edge and tumbled down the side of this thing. And I came up towards him and the medics were already there. They'd landed in the chopper and they got a silver blanket over the guy. And I'm thinking, man, this is it. Here's, here's one of them, you know. And as I got close up, it was snowing at the time and things. Obviously, it was really cold because um, you were at 5,000 meters. And as I got closer and closer, I realized that the blanket was covering him and they had another silver blanket all around his head to try and keep him warm. And so he was, he was on a drip and everything and he was obviously on a, on a spine board and stuff. And, they were, sure. and then you know, obviously once I passed, they were going to load him in the chopper and things. But it was, the reality of it was in your face every day and you are physically broken, you are mentally broken, you're exhausted. You, you know, you're, just, you're just done. Okay, I want to go back a step. So, so first of all, how long? How many days is the Dakar Rally? Thirteen. Thirteen days. Can you take me through each day? Uh, you know, not off the top of my head right now, but there was there was so many things that happened each day. But to give you an idea, there was three of us South Africans at the start of the race. Mm-hmm. On day on day four, my one teammate Walter De Blanche from Cape Town. There was a really it was a really difficult day that day. We were at high altitude. There was dune fields. There was all sorts of. And in one particular stretch. There were dunes for kilometer after kilometer after kilometer, and the dunes were so soft, and there was the bikes lacked power at high altitude and stuff, and there were 18 riders that day who went out in that section. There's only 150 riders they allowed to start. So for 18 guys to all go out in one day in one section was huge. It was it was brutal, and, and he burnt out his motor in that section, and he was out the race. And then on day five the next day, it was one of those days through the Andes Mountains where we crossed over the high altitude passes and things and, and he had a massive high speed crash on, on those muddy tracks because of the snow and the hail and rain and stuff. Oh. And I came around a corner and I just saw his bike lying there. And I recognized his bike and I looked around for Dave and I, and I saw him lying there and it turned out he'd, he'd broken his leg in eight places. It was just, oh. it, it, was, it was terrible. And I helped to load him into the chopper and everything and then I carried on. So at the end of day five, I'm the last... South African biker left in the race. And I mean, you got to understand that Walter and Dave are two freaking tough, proper bikers. They're faster than me. They're, they're, they're way more capable riders than I am, you know. And, and so to, to see these guys go out like this was, was, was terrible, you know. They're, they're really just, you know, That's they're not everyday guys. These are, these are some incredible guys. And, you know, then I had to just get through each day. But also on that day, day five, had a little crash, not a big one, just kind of caught my foot on a bush in, in this like sandy environment and I ripped my foot off the foot peg and, I, and it turned out later that evening that I found out I'd torn the ligaments in my knee. Oh, and so no. here I am with these additional challenges physically already and now I've got torn ligaments in my knee and it's looking like they're going to pull me from the race because <gasps> once they decide that you're, that you're injured enough, you, you know, then they say they won't allow you to continue. And so I had to go to the medics and I was seen to by an orthopedic surgeon and, and they did a sonar on my knee in a tent in the middle of the desert. It was crazy. <laughs> yes. And and then they looked at this and they called over the head doctor and she came over and she's the one who makes the decision. And she said, look, you know, you've torn the ligament in your knee and I recommend we pull you from the race. <gasps> but your knee is still stable. So if you want to continue, we'll let you continue. And now I've, it's taken me 10 years to get to the start of this race. I'm <laughs> like, how much? Like, <laughs> a whole lot million. of money. So, so I'm like, I'm freaking racing, man. And so, so they strapped up my knee and we put it in a knee brace and I, and I managed to fit it back into my boots. And on, on that next day, day six, I was on that start line. 
and got through day six and day seven, day eight, and there's oh, there's so many things that that happened along the way. But I got all the way to day twelve of thirteen, yeah. and that is when everything just went south big time. What happened? Well, on day eleven, the day before, I'd had some challenges, and so you always f- start in your finish order of the day before, and the and so I started stone last on day 12 but by this point you got to understand I've finished last at many races now mm. so so this is my position and on on that day 12 off I went stone last at 4 o'clock in the morning is when they start us off and they start all the bikes and after the bikes they, then they send wait half an hour and they send the cars and after the cars the trucks but it's incredibly dangerous for bikes to to race with cars and trucks you know you, you got, that's how the majority of the big injuries happen and they've created a system to try and make it safer because the cars and trucks are faster than most of the bikers. And so you're going to get passed by cars and trucks all day. And so in every car and truck, there's a transponder. And on every bike, there's an alarm. And so when the car or truck comes up to a bike and they can see them normally two or 300 meters in the distance, they see some dust from the biker, they press this button and this alarm goes off on your bike. And as a biker, you look behind you, you see the car or truck about 200 meters back and you pull over to the side of the track you know right out of the way um sort of 10 15 meters off to the side if you can and and then this car or truck just comes past just whoa, just covers <gasps> you in sand and dirt and stones and everything but the reason you stay off the track is because sometimes there's two or three cars in a row and you can't see, see those guys and they can't see you because you're just invisible in this dust cloud now and so you want to be well out of the way and and so on that day 12 I'm racing along stone last and I'm in this semi-arid section where it's this two-spur track. But over the years, the spurs have got deeper and deeper and the middle monarchy is very steep so you can't you can't ride on it. And outside of the tracks is a little vegetation here and there. So as a biker, you've got to pick one of these tracks, one of these ruts and just ride in the rut. And the rut varies in depth as you went along. But they were also filled with fish fish, which is like this really fine dust, like talcum powder. So it's hard to see the tracks. So I'm racing along, stone last, doing 50 or 60 k's an hour. But these cars and trucks now start coming through. And these guys are coming through at 120, 130, because they're four wheels, man. They just put those wheels in and they just floor it. And my alarm goes off. And I turn around expecting to see this car, you know, like 200 meters back. But he's like 30 meters back, doing more than double my speed. And I know he's expecting me just to swerve off right out of the way into the bush and I see this and I just swing my bars to try and get out the way. I've literally got like two or three seconds to get out of the way. But right where I am, that rut is particularly deep. And I try to turn that bike and that front wheel just drags against the inside of that rut. And I'd already committed my weight to the outside. And I just, this guy's right on me and I just dive off this bike and I just hear a crunch. And this guy just <gasps> crashes straight into my bike and completely rides over it. Oh my God. Out of the race? Pretty much, you know, at that point, oh. the guy stopped about 30 meters up and the navigator stood out the car and gave me a thumbs up. And I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> get back here. And and he just got back in that car and rode off. And I dragged that bike out of that track and I stood it up and I was done. That was it. You know, the whole back end of the bike was torn up, all the electrics exposed. The exhaust was completely flattened and bent into the back wheel. Whole frame of the bike is bent, foot peg torn off um, with parts of the frame three petrol tanks on the bike two of them are just destroyed all the petrols run out the whole navigation tower broken off mangled up into the bars and um, the bars bent the bikes just destroyed 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 and at that point i had 660 kilometers to still race that day <gasps> just nothing i can do just just done and where's your mechanic 660 kilometers away <gasps> oh so they <laughs> so don't so don't no, no, so they're no. not even close by so you can't call them to come in every own. night every night you get your mechanic works on the bike in the daytime you've got to get bivouac to bivouac on your own so so what now what happened so first phone meredith on the sat phone because i carry a sat <laughs> phone and i because i had to tell her you know because here i am stopped in the middle of desert she's following me on the computer back home and she's going to oh see me gosh. stopped and i know as every minute ticks away and ticks away and I'm not moving 10 minutes, 20 minutes, she's going to be so worried and I think I've got to tell her I'm out of the race. And I phone her up on the sat phone and I say, you know, hey, I'm I'm not injured, but I'm out. And obviously it was just incredibly difficult for both of us to stand there and stuff and it was, oh, it was a tough moment and hung up that phone and I thought, you know what, I'm out of this race, but but you're only out when you miss your start time the next day. 
my start time the next day was 4 a.m. And so I decided to try and fix this bike. And what I did is I, I took some of the navigation equipment off. I, I took the whole exhaust off. You know, it was all flattened and bent in the back wheel. I had to strip some of the wiring off the back of the bike because it was just sopping wet with fuel. I didn't want the wiring sparking and having a little a little impromptu brine in the middle of South America there. Uh, I disconnected the petrol tanks that were damaged and I, you know, it took me the best part of an hour, but I, but I got that bike working without sure. a foot peg on a bent frame with all sorts of stuff, no navigation. And then I just started riding it, zigzagging through the bush because I couldn't stay in the track anymore because there were more cars and trucks coming through and I couldn't get in and out oh of the, the thing. And so I'm just ticking along, but at the speed I'm going, it's going to take me a couple of weeks to finish this distance. I'm wasting my time. I'm out of the race. I'm running out of fuel. Um, I've got enough fuel for about 20Ks. And the next place I'm going to hit civilization is 65 kilometers away. I'm not even close. I'm not even, it's silly. I'm wasting my time. I'm out the race. I just need to stop. My goodness. Okay, but I know how the story ends. (laughs) So, And then. (laughs) Let's just stop there for a moment. So, you're obviously going through a tremendous amount of emotions. Oh, huge. It's not like you, you know, you've come a far way. You've gone through this whole journey. And also in the back of your mind, you know the, the fight that you had to, to fight to yeah. be there. And it's a few days or, or it's a day before yeah. before the finish. And, Two days before the end, yeah. And, and just got to get go. through that day and the next. And, and can I tell you, it's also, it's hard to explain when, you, when you're sitting here and, you, and you've, you've eaten and you've slept and you feel healthy and stuff. You know, we rode those bikes. Well, I, my average time on the bike was 16 hours a day for the last 11 <laughs> days. This is day 12. So I am so physically broken. I, I've never been that exhausted in my life. Emotionally, you're just, you're just done. Mentally, you're done. You know, my lips are split, my face is burnt, my, my cheeks are raw from wearing goggles for the last however many days. My ears are just in so much pain from having earplugs in for, oh. for, for 12 days. You know, it's ridiculous little things, but it all adds up. You're chafing everywhere from, from wearing the body armor and the knee braces. And, you know, you just, your whole body's a mess. So when that car hit me and I realized I was out of the race, you're almost relieved mm. because it ends. That chopper's going to come pick you up. And you're done and you can go home and you can go shower and you can go and like eat and you can and so you're almost relieved but but at the same time you're just so completely gutted Mm. you know Um, and so it took every ounce of everything I had to try and you know decide I'm going to try to fix this bike and I'm going to keep going until four the next morning but because at this point it's like 10 in the morning so I'm committing now to ride this bike for another what 18 hours or whatever you know it was just you know, through the night until I'm out. And so it was like, it was sure. hard to like commit to something like that, but but that's what we did. And so as I'm riding along there, knowing I'm wasting my time, knowing I can't finish this race, I'm a dead man walking. I'm just kicking this can down the road, putting back the inevitable. I'm going to run out of petrol in the next hour and and then I'm going to be stuck in the middle of this desert and I'm just going to try to push the bike or walk or what. I don't know, you, you know, but I'm, I'm done. And it was just... It was the hardest thing to do that, was to keep going when you know you're out. Do they allow you, though, to, to do this at night? Are you, are you free to, to go? I mean, I, I'm just trying to imagine in the dunes, in the yeah. dark. You see, you, this is you... it. This is the beauty of this race, is that in any other sport, they're not going to allow that. They're, it's too dangerous. They would never. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you know, they're not going to let you do those kind of things. But that's what's so beautiful about you know, rally racing and, and the Dakar in particular is it's like you sign up for this gladiator opportunity, basically. And so sure. y- you get this, they let you ride at night alone in the desert, you know. Um, that's, that's all part of the game, you know. And that's why they have such a strict selection process, you know, leading up to it. You've got to, you know, send in a CV with all the things you've done, all the races you've completed and stuff. And they, they evaluate and every year they turn away, you know, many, many people who are entering the race and so to qualify is is a challenge in itself that's why i had to go to morocco and all that sort of stuff and so you know yeah you and i've and it wasn't the first time i've had to ride through the night um you know there was other times i've i've ridden through the night racing in south africa at the Amageza rally and that kind of stuff and so I, I knew what i was signing up for if that makes sense but to just keep going there when you know you're right is is, is probably the hardest thing to do 
So definitely you have to have the mindset for this thing. I mean, like, it's, <laughs> this is, this is not, not, for, you say amateurs and I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> you're a pro. No, 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 no. The, the pro, the pro is finishing the light. <laughs> it's us amateurs that finish in the dark. Oh my God, this is amazing. Okay. So at what point does things turn around for you? So there I am riding along, knowing I'm out of this race. Yeah. Everything's over. I'm dealing with all this emotional, all this physical stuff. And then there's a bike just standing there in the middle of the desert. A KTM 450 rally replica. <laughs> a 600,000 rand yep, motorcycle. <laughs> just sitting there in the middle of the desert, just standing there. And I come up to this bike and what had happened was the rider had crashed. He'd broken his arms. Um, he'd just been medevaced out in the chopper. So that bike stays there until the sweeper truck at the back of the race comes along and picks up that bike. And there it is. Now, the rules of Dakar is I can't ride that bike, but I can use parts from that bike. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so, like I've said before, you know, if you remember, I told you I grew up in Kempton. So <laughs> and so there were these three, uh, there were these three, Argentinian guys there as well on old dirt bikes just spectating the race in the middle of nowhere and they helped me and we stripped that whole exhaust off that bike and we siphoned all the petrol out of it and we stripped the whole side of the frame so I had a foot peg because I was been riding for the last however long with one foot peg you know with my other foot tucked up on the seat behind me we we, we just took everything we needed from this bike and it took us a long time and I still had no navigation equipment but to strip all the navigation equipment off takes hours and so we couldn't do that at that point I was four hours behind the guy who was second last so I've, it's still touch and go if I'm going to make it in by 4 o'clock the next morning and I just had to go and so I started riding but now I've got foot pegs now I've got an exhaust now I've got fuel <laughs> even though my frame's bent and my bars are bent and stuff I'm back in this you know and I started I started racing and uh, I just raced on that whole day I never saw another bike or another quad and just a couple of cars and a couple of trucks and I just kept riding and riding and I just kept ticking away kilometers and then it started getting dark and I'm still riding six o'clock at night, seven o'clock at night, eight, sure. nine, ten, still just riding along alone, like you say, through South America, through June fields, through forests, crossing rivers at night. It was it was pretty damn scary. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I just freak out thinking about it. And can you see? Like I mean, I'm just trying can you see? Do you have enough lights? Yeah, you got a light on the front of your bike. Mine was all a bit broken, so the light wasn't shining where it should. It's like being in an old car where you got one <laughs> shining up with the guys flashing you and so it was like that. It wasn't the best lights, but it but I had lights on the bike and I just kept ticking away and ticking away and ticking away and oh man, it was it was tough. It was tough, tough, and you know, rode through those mountain passes, through canyons, and eleven o'clock at night, still riding, midnight, still riding, one in the morning, still riding, two in the morning, still riding, and at eleven minutes past two, I hit that second last bivouac of the of the Dakar rally. Oh my gosh! Okay, <laughs> so I, I recall somewhere I can't remember you had an interview with some. Somewhere in the race, before you met, you came to, to the end. Yeah. Everybody got to know about Joey Evans <laughs> and your story. Yeah. Tell it was, us about that. It was at that bivouac. I arrived there at 10 past two in the morning and, you know, you wouldn't believe it, but Walter de Blanche, my teammate from Cape Town, he was standing there at that gate at quarter past two in the morning waiting for me. Just incredible. And he climbed on the back of the bike and we rode into those pits together and he directed me to our team truck because those things are massive, those pits. You know, you can't find your team for ages. And we get to our team truck, my mechanic's there waiting for me. But along with my mechanic is the Red Bull TV crew. And now <laughs> I'm like, what? Because Red Bull TV doesn't really do a lot of coverage of the hackers like me at the back of the race. <laughs> and, and they filmed the whole thing. And, you know, we, they, they filmed us coming in and they did an interview there with myself and with with Walter and with, with Daryl Curtis who was there and things and it was just oh, it was just incredible how did it feel knowing that this was a dream for such an I think you said 2007 yeah 2007 ten and years. now you're 10 years later and you've done it well, I still had, hang on, I hadn't done it yet. I still had to ride another day. Oh, did you still have to? Oh, oh, I, so of I course, had one, okay. one hour of sleep that night and then I had to ride another 750 kilometers the next day. And man, that was tough as well. It wasn't anything like the day before, obviously, but it was really? just, it was, you know, we ride, 
when we do these races, we have like a rubber band, which we put around the throttle. So you twist your throttle half yeah. open and you put a rubber, rubber band around it because your arms are so fatigued. You can't hold that throttle open. And a lot of that section was on tar roads where you have speed limits. So, so even though you're racing, it's a liaison section. So you have to cover the distance. And the majority of that day was covering the distance to the finish. So once I'd finished the racing section, I've got this rubber band around my throttle holding it open. And I'm just trying to stay awake. And I'm falling asleep on this bike and I'm fighting it and I'm fighting it. And then I'm like, I'd stop and I'd wash my face and have a Red Bull and then go again. And it was just, (laughs) man, it was one of those where it was just like, whatever it takes to get to you. And don't die on the last day, man. Don't die on the last day. (laughs) And I just kept ticking my way and ticking my way. And I crossed that finish line that afternoon um, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And obviously it was just incredible and the relief and oh man we got to go back to a hotel that night it was a beautiful place (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh okay so you finished the race who was the first person you called oh you know it's a you know for sure and you know i phoned meredith and we and man it was just oh it was super cool but the the coolest part was about two days later when i landed back in Joburg, and meredith was there at the airport with my girls and so many friends and family and bikers and you know guys from ktm and you know they just all uh, it was a big crowd at the airport and i came out all like joey joey Joey." it was just (laughs) it was just wow it was one of those moments that that i'll remember the rest of my life just incredible if you could do it over again would you the whole trip yeah i get asked that eh? and you know some people say you know if you could go back and not break your back would you do it and it's like obviously it's this cool story now and everything but at the same time i still deal with a lot of challenges every day a lot of physical challenges and i'm 44 now and so i'm going to deal with this you know for many many years still and i and i probably won't live as long you know with a lot of these complications and stuff which will obviously become bigger challenges as i get older and stuff and so you kind of look look down all this sort of stuff but what i say is that you know when i was you know, when I was younger and, and still now, I always wanted a full life. Mm. You know, I wanted a life where you have just adventure and challenges and ups and downs and all that sort of stuff. And so if I hadn't have broken my back, I wouldn't have had that down. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have changed me in so many ways and stuff like that. If I hadn't have taken the risks and raced Dakar, I wouldn't have had those incredible ups. You know, when that car hit me, it was the worst thing Mm. that could have happened. But I look back now, it was the best thing that could have happened. I mean, what a freaking ending to that story, to be hit by a car and find another car in the desert. It's just incredible. And so I think that that is is probably the perfect analogy for breaking my back. At the time, it was terrible. But I look back, and it was freaking cool. You know, to have a life where you've had all these kind of crazy ups and downs because that's what life is. Yeah. So, yep, I'll take the package deal. Well, listen, I I have such a respect for you and I think going through so much and also the example that you, you set for your girls and for your wife is like, you know what, never give up no matter what. And, you know, we all have our stories. We all have something if you scrape at the bottom of the barrel there's a story somewhere and some people feel like giving up and your story just empowers so many people just to you know not give up which is which is so important how has this changed your life oh man in every way it it changes how i see people it changes you know just the way i see the future that you realize it's not guaranteed you value every day that you have every day with your family every day with your mates Every day you have the opportunity for me to ride a bike and be in the you know outdoors and oh man, there's just so much that we have and it all you know, you just gotta focus on the good stuff, man. Mm. Stop stop worrying about all the problems and focus on all the good things. And if you are having a downtime and it is freaking miserable, you just remember that's that's a pretty cool chapter one of a good comeback story. 
100%. I think they're going to make a movie about you. Seriously. <laughs> we need to send this to Oprah Winfrey or to Ella Dege- DeGeneres or somebody, eh? I mean, it's it's truly a remarkable story. So what are you currently up to? What What's happening in your life? What are you keeping, what keeps you busy during your daytime? Well, what I do now is I do a lot of uh, corporate speaking, keynote mm-hmm. speaking, and so that's something that I never planned on doing, you know. I never planned on writing a book either. And I and I came back from Dakar and, you know, it was obviously my story was covered on carte blanche and on super sports and all this sort of stuff. It was like this crazy alternate universe kind of thing. And then I had the opportunity to write the book and, and so I wrote the book, wrote it all myself. And then that was published and just a couple of weeks ago we hit we hit bestseller, ten thousand copies, Woo-hoo! which was <laughs> which was super cool, I gotta tell you. And then, yeah, I started, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I started doing the talks and, and I just was like, man, I, I love this. I love doing it. And I, and I wasn't one of these people who enjoyed public speaking, but it just kind of clicked, you know, and I could see it was adding a lot of value and doing a lot of good. And I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And so for the last couple of years, I've been doing, uh, you know, corporate speaking and I've been fortunate enough to to speak uh, oh man, in in Australia and Dubai and Poland and Switzerland and Germany oh and gosh. Kenya, and it's been the last two years has been just a, a crazy whirlwind of adventure and experiences and things, and and we're not done yet. So yeah, the future. There's so much more. You know, I want to I want to speak all over the world in more places. You know, I want to go to crazy little countries. You know, I got to a couple months ago. I was in Pakistan, which was super cool. Oh wow! And so I want to do more. I want to race my bike. I've, I've been fortunate to, to ride. No, man, we, we're not done yet. I've been fortunate enough to ride in 18 different countries, and I want to I wanna keep adding to that list. And uh, there's, there's a race uh, up in North Africa that we're looking at doing. There's another one in, in, in Russia and China. And so, yep, we've got lots more adventures. And along with that, I'm, I'm involved with the Adaptive Sports Fund, which is a fund where we, we do adaptive equipment and adaptive sporting experiences oh. for guys with spinal cord injuries and other injuries and stuff and so we do we did a adaptive go-karting the other day where we put uh, hand controls on the on the steering wheel oh so so gosh. paralyzed guys could could race go-karts super cool uh there's adaptive scuba diving there's all sorts of stuff adaptive wakeboarding some cool stuff that's innovation exactly. right there oh there's so much you know there's really so much and once again it's that whole like what can you do not what what you can't do i love that i'm just thinking red bull should sponsor you like to be reporting on the Dakar <laughs> rally or maybe you should be on super sport and you should be like a presenter I think that you because I mean when people see you on stage I mean you really I promise you you make people laugh about things and you're like I can't laugh about this I'm gonna feel so guilty but um Joey thank you so much for sharing your story with us where can people get hold of your book uh the best is probably my website Joey Evans co.za and mm-hmm. um, that would be the best but also you know you can get them through all the bookstores and that kind of stuff as well and um, there's also an audio book which which we did this year so i actually read it myself which was kind of cool and my wife wrote parts with her feelings and stuff and she's read nice. she's read her parts so so the audio book's pretty cool it's available obviously on uh, on amazon and audible all that stuff and yep there's an ebook as well so yeah it's all over are you going to like try and get another book out? I tell you what, why don't you tell my wife I'm going to race Dakar again and see how that goes down? Why does it have to be Dakar? Can it not be something else? Like, <laughs> lessons learned <laughs> after the Dakar uh, rally. No, be, no, uh, you know what? Hey, when I wrote the book, I was like, as I was writing it, I was like, never again will I do this. So who knows? You know what I mean? It would have to be some, some pretty cool stories, before. but you'd have to have some pretty cool stuff to make another book. But uh, you never know. Okay, well, in tradition, we do have this uh, game that we play. So all I'm going to say is everything uh, that you're going to be told to do, you have to do the opposite. You have to give me the wrong answers. The wrong answers. The wrong answers. Okay. Hello, my cousins. It's Barry Hilton here, and welcome to the Carmen Murray Show. Have I got something lacquer to show you? I've got a game that I've invented called Smart Ask. Yes, can you be a smart ask? I'm sure you can. Most of us are smart askers. But this game, it's quite simple. It's split up into six categories. There's nine cards on each category. Every card has six questions. The dealer chooses the question. And all you have to do is answer three questions correctly to win the game. Is that easy? Uh, Well, all of the answers are in multiples of three. So let's get ready to play the game. On your marks, 
gets it. Go. Films featuring Meryl Streep. Uh, Meryl Streep films. Um, Fast and the Furious. Uh, Nightmare. Not Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> Uh, and she'll probably be around for Rocky 12. <laughs> GSTV channels. Uh, crashing bikes with Joey Evans. Um, first husbands are the hardest with Meredith Evans. <laughs> and then uh, uh, you can host one. Um, learning to race Dakar bikes with Carmen Murray. Oh my God, no. Okay, okay. Songs of the Rolling Stones. Um, hey, dude. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they sing that good one, Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay, brands of whiskey. Brands of whiskey. Um, Johnny Runners. Uh, three, three small boats. Um, and uh, cat piss. Oh, currencies. Currencies. Uh, Zimbabwean dollar three. And, uh, cool. Brilliant. You smashed it. Oh my gosh. I love that one. Nightmare on Elm Street, he says. <laughs> hey, dude. <laughs> That's a classic. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much. It has been awesome. Super uh, cool. Thank you. In uh, the show notes, we will put the link to Joey Evans' website. So if you please help um, support Joey Evans in his book and share his story. Let's get a movie deal for this one. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Joey. Cool. Bye-bye Cheers. now. Bye-bye. Cheers. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another solid gold podcast. Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com, where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Ouya Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences, B2B, B2C, and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX Strategy, Persona Development and Customer Journey Mapping, CX Audits, UX Audits, and the Connected Marketer Training in Connected Customer Experiences, Mobile, Data Management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.